everyone, and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this One Woman, One Mic show. In today's episode, we will examine the music that rock critic Lester Bangs said was the basic sound of rock and roll, minus the rage, fear, violence, and enemy that runs from Johnny Burnett to Sid Vicious. That is bubblegum. But first, I want to thank everyone who's dropped me a line uh, in the past few weeks just to say hello um, or to offer suggestions. And I've had more than one person suggest that I do an episode on bubblegum. So here we are. Sounded like a good idea to me. Feel free to drop me a line, even if it's just to say hi uh, at ftr70.com. You'll find the link to the email address. And also there, uh, you will find a link to the Patreon account. I ask that you consider being a patron of the show to help pay the bills. That's at ftr70.com. Despite having Lester Bangs, who you might recall was played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in the movie Almost Famous as its champion, bubblegum music was a tough sell to rock critics. The term refers as much to the age group that the music is marketed to as it does to the sound, which is generally up-tempo dance music with uncomplicated lyrics. The age group for marketing was eh, roughly 12 to 16. There could be some variance one way or the other way on the lower end or the higher end of that age scale. The fact, though, that an artist or a record label would intentionally seek the dollar of preteens who are presumed to have bad taste in music is exactly what turned off the vast majority of rock critics. They would pound out scathing reviews of concerts or singles, and we are mostly talking about singles here, with a lot of words that amounted to one basic sentiment. Where is the authenticity? To add to the offensiveness from the perspective of the critics... Some of the so-called bands that scored mega hits with bubblegum were not bands at all. Uh, We're talking the Ohio Express, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, the Archies. These are not real bands. How galling was it for rock bands like Led Zeppelin or Jefferson Airplane or the Rolling Stones for crying out loud to share rarefied top 10 chart air with cartoon bands? Well, I am here to make the case that fake bands did not mean fake songs. And I will pick up the baton from the late Lester Bangs and say that these pop songs share the same roots as rock and roll. Is Sugar Sugar by the Archies really all that far from She Loves Me by the Beatles? Bangs wrote this about bubblegum music near the end of the 70s. The wonderful irony is that it worked. And even if most of these groups never really existed. There was an authentic tenderness they meant when they sang, Oh, sugar, sugar, honey, you are my candy girl. I can't stop wanting you. Still, this is me now, it is true that some people look down on things that are popular and for some popular culture should be shunned or ridiculed simply because it is, in fact, popular. Pop music can be very hard to define, but at the heart of it all, it's catchy and it sells. To not like a song because you do not like the lyrics, or the hook does not grab you, or its syncopated rhythm doesn't make you want to dance, that's a legitimate argument. To not like a song because too many other people like it seems mm, a bit pretentious. Simon Frith, a former professor of music studies and a former rock critic, 
who has written many, many essays and articles on pop music, has stated that pop music is for public use. That means, in part, that the purpose of pop music is to make a profit. You do that as a pop music artist by giving people what they want, what they already know they want, and not by pushing boundaries. Is that a bit formulaic? Yeah. Does that mean it's bad? Not necessarily. You might get tired of it, or you might only want a taste of it once in a while, because maybe your capacity for pushing boundaries might be higher than that of your neighbor's. But that means it is not to your taste, which doesn't necessarily call for throwing all that is popular out the window. Don Kirshner, who you may recall created the Midnight Special for late-night music viewing pleasure of rock and pop fans in the 70s, also created The Monkees. The Monkees, not a real band per se, in that they were created for a television show. But Michael Naismith, Peter Tork, Davy Jones, Mickey Dolenz, these were real people. They were actors and musicians hired to pay fictional musicians, seemingly inspired by the Beatles. But they were real people. In fact, if Stephen Stills had better teeth and thicker hair, he might have been a monkey because he actually auditioned for a part, and supposedly those were the reasons why he was not selected. Now, The Monkees was only on the air for two years, which is kind of hard to believe, uh, given the popularity of the music and of the band. Uh, They were on the air from 66 to 68. But just because the band was created specifically for TV did not mean that the music was fake. Mickey Dolenz did, in fact, sing lead on The Last Train to Clarksville, and Davy Jones did, in fact, sing lead on Daydream Believer. Kirshner had a song, though, that was written by Jeff Berry and Andy Kim that he was sure would be a hit. Barry had written songs uh, as part of that brill-building hit factory, and Kim joined him when Barry and his wife, who was also his songwriting partner, got a divorce. The Monkees thought the song was crap and told Kirshner that they would not do it. So Kirshner said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a fictional band that will not talk back to me. They will just do what I tell them to do. And that is partially how the Archies were born a cartoon band based on the Archie comics that had its own Saturday morning cartoon could not say no to Don Kirshner when presented with Sugar Sugar. Ron Dante sang all of the parts of the song. His voice was used on multiple tracks to make it seem like he was being backed up by a band. This song ruled the Hot 100 in 1969. It was released around Memorial Day of that year, And it did take some convincing by Kirshner to get any radio DJ to play it. It was not that this was a bad song. In fact, anyone who has ever heard pop music can hear this is a hit. It was just that it was by the Archies. The way Kirshner tells it, he finally got a DJ in Texas to play it one time. And he did. And then all the calls came in requesting the song and the rest, as they say, was history. Sugar Sugar was number 41 in early August of 69. It was number 24 by mid-August. It was number 14 by August 23rd, and one spot behind Andy Kim's Baby I Love You. Yes, the same Andy Kim who co-wrote Sugar Sugar. How weird is that? And then by the end of August 1969, Sugar Sugar was at number three in the Billboard Hot 100. Number two 
was A Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash. And number one was Honky Tonk Women by the Rolling Stones. It took three weeks, but Sugar Sugar by the Archies knocked Honky Tonk Women by one of the greatest rock bands of all time out of the number one spot. And it stayed there for a month. Chris Malamphy does a pop chart podcast for Slate called The Hit Parade. And he did an episode a while back about Credence Clearwater Revival and the fact that they never had a number one hit. They had five songs, make it to number two, and then just stall out. The reason why Green River could not make it to number one is because of this song. Sugar. tell right now this is going to be one of those episodes where i'm going to have to keep a close eye on that mute button because you don't want to hear me singing along and i i'm looking at this list here and there's going to be some singing along uh with this particular episode sugar sugar good hook simple lyrics syncopated rhythm sounds like a hit was a hit in a book about bubblegum music called bubblegum music is the naked truth by kim cooper and david smay This is what they had to say about Sugar Sugar and specifically about the Archies. It's clear in retrospect that the Archies caused the 70s, while other musicians drifted around the airwaves with the flicker of of public taste. The Archies ran on TV every Saturday morning from 1968 to 1978. The effect was profound. The Archies molded the taste of a whole generation of preteens before their runny little brains had a chance to gel. Not only did it infect these kids with the pure, viral distillate of pop, it taught them to presume instant gratification as their birthright. By the way, while Sugar Sugar had a vice grip on the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100, another so-called bubblegum artist who was real had a hit with Little Woman. Bobby Sherman was a teen idol very handsome, looked great on a poster, who sold a lot of records in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, In addition to Little Woman, he had hits with Julie, Do You Love Me, Easy Come, Easy Go, and he was a TV star. He was on Here Come the Brides. Um, He was on a lot of the, he did a lot of guest appearances on shows like Emergency. He made the girls scream at his concerts. And when he was asked about whether his music was, in fact, bubblegum, he said some of it was and some of it was not. However, all due respect to Bobby Sherman, he seemed to be a bit 
of an opening act for the teen idol extraordinaire for 1970 and 1971, David Cassidy. David Cassidy was 20 years old, but boyish enough to pay, play 16-year-old Keith Partridge with a cast that included his real stepmother, Shirley Jones. The TV sitcom The Partridge Family had the same producers that worked on The Monkees, and their plan was just to dub in the music because as far as they knew, Shirley Jones was the only one in the cast who knew how to sing. They were pleasantly surprised to discover that Cassidy could sing too, and so we have A Star is Born. Now David wanted to be an actor, but not on a show like this. And he wanted to sing, but not songs like I Think I Love You. However, Bubblegum Pop, still a huge seller, and a lot more money could be made with an actual band or a performer to sing the song. I mean, after all, you can't put the Archies on tour. And think of the merchandise sales, too. So that was David Cassidy's fate, as well as the fate of other teen idols who made music that fits into the bubblegum category. So in the early 70s, we start to see, at least in the United States, bubblegum morphs into this obsession with teen idols who will also sell Tiger Beat or 16 Magazine posters, lunchboxes. From a marketing standpoint, there is a difference between the bubblegum cartoon bands and teen idols in that teen idols are real. But from a musical standpoint, there really is not that much that separates them. And if you read some of these old trade magazines like Billboard, you will note that the word product is used when referring to the music of both the cartoon bands and the real teen idols, because it's a a lot about marketing. Ron Tepper was a marketer for the Lawfer Company in Los Angeles, and he said that you could not generate demand for teen idols. They either fit the mold of what the teenagers wanted, or they did not. If they did, the teenagers bought the merchandise and the records and the concert tickets. If they did not, as Tepper said, you could not give those records away. David Cassidy did an interview for Rolling Stone in 1972, and he admitted he was a bit hostile about it at first because he thought they were going to make fun of him. He talked about his image and what was expected of him by that time, two years into playing Keith Partridge. He told the interviewer, Robin Green, when I first got in the studio, I said to the producer, Wes Farrell, I don't want to cut bubblegum records. And he said, no, man, we're going to cut bubblegum records. Me and my friend Cookie were jamming at the time, the blues, and all of a sudden, I'm going to sing I Think I Love You? He also talked about his drug and alcohol use in that article, which was an unfortunate foreshadowing of his life as an alcoholic. I'm pretty sure he talked about those things because he wanted to try to poke holes in that bubblegum image. And then just to make sure that we got the message that he wanted to be a rock star and not a teen idol, he posed nude for the photo shoot that Annie Leibovitz did for the cover. Now, we don't quite see Mr. Partridge, but uh, there's no doubt that he is naked on that cover. Still, when you watch film footage of David Cassidy singing this song that he resisted for so many years, but that so many people loved, you would never know that he had ever been ambivalent about it. He told Rolling Stone interviewer Robin Green. It's a high going out on that stage. You look around and it's all there for you. People loving you like that. My friends are there with me. 
I'm doing what I love to do, singing, and I'm singing for people who would rather have me sing than anybody else in the world. Here's a bit of that bubblegum classic, complete with catchy hook, I Think I Love You. Right in the middle of a good dream Like all at once I wake up From something that keeps knocking at my brain Before I go insane I hold my pillow to my head And spring up in my bed Screaming out the words I dread I think I love you I think I love you This morning I woke up with this feeling I didn't know how to deal with And so I just decided to myself I'd hide it to myself And never talk about it And did not go and shout it When you walked into the room I think I love you the feeling when you were watching the Brady Bunch, and I say this as a big fan still of the Brady Bunch, that Greg Brady wished he was David Cassidy, just couldn't quite match that cool factor. Now, Cassidy was not the only one who was not sure about I Think I Love You. Radio stations did not want to play it until a station in, I think, Iowa gave it a chance. And then, of course, it shot to number one. Pretty sure the TV show, The Partridge Family, had a lot to do with that. The show debuted on September 25th, 1970, and then uh, I Think I Love You hit number one November 21st. And by the way, it knocked out I'll Be There by the bubblegum-adjacent Jackson 5. That was David Cassidy's first and last number one hit. It was also the last song that he played live. In his youth, he struggled with how he felt exploited, and the gap between what he envisioned his career to be and what it was. In his final months in 2017, he was struggling with dementia and a variety of other issues that he openly admitted were brought on by alcoholism, and he played a show at B.B. King's Blues Club in New York. This is what he said before singing I Think I Love You on stage one more time. He said, Dr. Phil or someone asked me recently, what do you want your legacy to be? I don't know. I never thought about it. I guess the fact that everything I did in my life was to bring light and love into all the world that I was able to touch because you gave that to me a hundred thousand times. So this, as long as I have breath in my body, I'm going to sing this song for the rest of my life and it is something that I treasure. Right now I'm looking at a cover of Tiger Beat Magazine from October 1970, and on the cover are David Cassidy, Bobby Sherman, and Donny Osmond. It's a little bit creepy. Ten-year-old Donny is pointing at the camera, looking cute as a bug. And the caption is, spend the night with us. What? Ew. Spend the night with ten-year-old Donny? But Fred Rice, who was a promoter for the Jacksons, said that the bubblegum audience needed teen idols that were not a sexual threat. 
to have a picture of David Cassidy or Donny Osmond on their pillow was like sleeping with them. Interesting point. Uh, That also gives me some serious pause when I start thinking about my Sean Cassidy pillow, but I digress. So Donny Osmond was the perfect bubble gummer. He was cute and wholesome and totally not threatening. He was the reason, by the way, that young girls screamed and cried and fainted and shoved themselves up against the stage at Osmond Brothers concerts. They were not screaming for Wayne or for Merrill. It was just a matter of time before Donnie became a solo act. And what else were you going to do with a kid like that? I know the Osmonds did not like the bubblegum label, but Donnie was the epitome of a bubblegum artist. The reason that Donnie could get away with covering a love song like Go Away Little Girl without sounding creepy is that he was a little boy. And when you ask a kid to cover this next song, written for a Mouseketeer in 1960, you are making no pretenses about your target audience. Love was originally written and performed by Paul Anka for his crush, Mouseketeer Annette Funicello. His version made it to number two on the Billboard pop chart, but Donnie's cover made it to number three in 1972. That was the year that the Osmonds had 11, count them, 11 gold records, meaning that each one of those records sold at least one million copies. At that time, uh, that was a record unmatched by even the Beatles or Elvis. Now, the Osmonds may not have liked the bubblegum label. They didn't. They wanted to be considered rock. And Donnie did his best to knock down that bubblegum image without going the way of David Cassidy as he got older. But look, pop music fans, especially the young ones, they sure did love them as bubblegum idols, especially, of course, Donnie. Back in episode 20 of this podcast, I talked about the British band Sweet, and how their song, Love is Like Oxygen, shows the transition of glam rock to metal. I also made kind of an offhand comment about a hit that Sweet had six years earlier in 1972 called Little Willie, and how that song is more of a bubblegum song. So let's take a closer look at that, as well as the band that could not seem to decide on its name, let alone the type of music it wanted to play. In the late 60s, The Sweet was known as The Sweet Shop, an incredibly obvious nod to the popularity of bubblegum music. Then the name was shortened to The Sweet. But the type of singles, that was the same. Uh, Songs like Coco, Funny Funny, 
Lollipop Man, uh, Wigwam Bam. Their biggest American hits were Little Willie, Fox on the Run, Ballroom Blitz, and the aforementioned Love is Like Oxygen. Little Willie has all the markings of the classic bubblegum hit. First is that alliteration. Willie drives him silly with his star shoe shimmy shuffle down. It also has that chant that is just right for shouting out at the roller rink. And by the way, that stay down part of the song, also excellent for showing off your skating skills. That song was released in the U.S. in 1973, which was a year later than it was released in Europe, and that really seemed to bug the band a a little bit, because by the time they were uh, a hit in the United States, they were trying to change their image. In fact, they didn't even tour in the United States and take advantage of how big of a hit Little Willie was. Andy Scott, who played guitar for Sweet, said in a 1978 interview, that that was intentional, and that there was, quote, no way the band was going to come and tour because of Little Willie being a hit 18 months after the fact. He went on to say they were not too pleased that Americans wanted to hear Little Willie in Ballroom Blitz at their shows, which they didn't play in their first couple of shows. They had to make some adjustments to that. They were also kind of considered opening act material, material in the United States, and they didn't like that too much either. It's really hard to change your image once it is set in the minds of the people who buy your product. On one hand, I do get that teen idols trying to break free out of the mold as they grow older seems like a natural progression. But on the other hand, it is, I think, kind of too bad that the bubblegummers couldn't just be that without feeling like it was not good enough or authentic enough. Steve Wax, who was a public relations representative for Bell Records in the early 70s, said, Bubblegum music, you've got to remember that good and bad are relative terms. People say to me, how can you promote that stuff? 
but I'm paid to do a job. So uh, what do my personal likes have to do with it? If that's what the people want, how can I deny it to them? That's why what really struck me about listening to an interview with the Sugar Sugar co-writer Andy Kim is how much he loved that song. I shouldn't say loved, loves that song. I don't mean in the, I used to be embarrassed, but 40 years later, I've accepted that the song is well is what sells concert tickets, that kind of way. The man loves the song and appreciates what it did for him. He also loves Rock Me Gently. And he said, quoting Mark Twain of all people, the two best days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. He embraced being a pop songwriter, even if you want to call it bubblegum. It's cool to see Andy Kim, by the way, dead ringer for Gene Simmons. It's cool to see him love his pop songs instead of apologizing for them. Now, Rock Me Gently, it's not exactly bubblegum, but as Stereo Gum columnist Tom Brehan put it, it's built on the same formulas that made Sugar Sugar work. And those formulas didn't stop working just because everyone got embarrassed about the idea of a cartoon band hitting number one. In a YouTube interview series called Behind the Vinyl that is published by Boom 97.3, a Canadian radio station, Andy said when he was recording the song, he sat back when it was over and thought, my God, I've recorded the best song of my life. But it took a year and a half to get it on the radio. He had to pay it, pay for that himself. He ended up creating his own record label and didn't have enough money for more than one song. So side B of the 45 is just an instrumental of Rock Me Gently. But his perseverance paid off because he not only had recorded the best song of his life, he had a number one hit. In 1974, Rock Me Gently hung around the Hot 100 all summer and finally made it to number one in September. Andy also said in that interview that he did not want to do a guitar solo or a drum solo in Rock Me Gently because he wanted to try something a little bit different. He wanted something that he called Stevie Wonderish, so he called up his keyboard player who came up with the cool keyboard solo that you hear near the end of the song. 
By the way, if you want to spend some time going down a YouTube rabbit hole, and who doesn't, uh, do check out the Boom 97.3 Behind the Vinyl series. Each episode is only about four minutes long, and they do profile some really great singles. The Bay City Rollers are a microcosm of the claims of fake and fraud that is bubblegum. Um, They took their name from a town in Michigan at random because an American name sounded cool. They had been known as the Saxons. Their manager, Tam Patton, invented stories about them being these clean-living Scottish boys in calf-length pants and tartan scarves to make them appealing to the 13-year-olds who bought all the Teen Idol magazines and skated to their songs at the roller rink. He created their image and he kept a very tight control of it, firing members of the band whenever it suited him. Meanwhile, he was also feeding the boys speed and allegedly stealing their money. There are also some pretty disturbing allegations that he tried to rape one of the boys in the band. And then years later, he did actually go to prison for molesting other underage boys. Les McEwen said in the 70s, I was the milk-drinking, clean-living virgin that the Bay City Rollers manager made me. When that illusion was shattered, I was the drug-crazed, hell-raising, fallen idol that the press made me. Well, the behavior behind the scenes with the Bay City Rollers, the drugs, uh, the sex with women in every city, none of that is really anything new under the sun in rock But while that might not just be accepted but expected of, say, Led Zeppelin or The Who, that is not true for one of the most famous boy bands in the world. The prevailing attitude was that image was everything. Now, image was definitely part of the equation. I'm not sure, though, that it was everything, looking back on it. Teenagers can be very loyal to their their idols. Case in point, Uh, The renowned rock journalist Lisa Robinson wrote in 1977, which was the height of the Bay City Rollers' popularity, that the level of hysteria generated by them was surprising to her, as she thought that Americans were too sophisticated, as she put it, to be taken in by a boy band like that. And it also seemed to be a bit unprecedented. This level of hype and hysteria went beyond even what the Osmonds or David Cassidy generated, And even when learning that the Bay City Rollers, they did not really drink milk and they did in fact smoke and one of them uh, hit an old woman with his car, none of that really seemed to dampen the fans' loyalty to the band. The Bay City Rollers performed in Ottawa, Canada in August 1976. Apparently at that show, they had some problems remembering what songs they were singing, uh, mixing up Saturday Night and Money Honey. The review of the show was not kind. This unleashed a torrent of letters to the editor of the Ottawa Citizen from their young fans. One wrote that she is sure that the boys were just a little bit nervous and excited. The only number one hit in the United States for the Bay City Rollers has the bubblegum formula down, especially that chant. Saturday. 
recorded in 1973, but not released in the United States until the summer of 1975. Saturday night hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in January 1976. In addition to a lot of teenage girls, do you know who else was a fan of the Bay City Rollers? The Ramones, who many people consider be, to be the first true punk rock band. Hmm. Is there a connection between bubblegum and punk? I think there is. Tom Verlaine of the punk band Television said years later that punk music never really existed and that it was just a more aggressive form of bubblegum. That statement really seemed to piss off John Lydon, who you probably know as Johnny Rotten, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. Here is his response to that. No, 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 no. Again, I've always hated the label punk, but if he calls the Sex Pistols slightly aggressive bubblegum, then he really is showing what a jealous, superficial expletive I always thought he was. Okay, I didn't say expletive. The newspaper said that. Johnny goes on to say, and he is part and parcel, now he's talking about Tom Verlaine, him and all of them New York trendy expletives that had the liberty to call themselves punk. They weren't really, they were posers. They all came from wealthy families and they all had lofts and trendy places to live and mummy and daddy bought them guitars. Of course, they would view the content of the Sex Pistols as bubblegum because it was far too ferocious and frontline for any one of them to consider so they would look at it as unartistic. Johnny doesn't seem too happy about that, that comment from Tom Verlaine. Well, here's what I think. I talked about punk rock in a bit more detail way back in episode 10 of this very podcast, and the fact that punk was a reaction to the corporate influence on rock. The focus on punk was stripping down a song to the essentials, and it has this urgent 4-4 beat, not a lot, if any, veering off into drum or guitar solos, um, lyrics were generally pretty simple. Now, of course, I'm not saying that punk is exactly like bubblegum, but you can see how bubblegum did influence punk and what I would call punk adjacent rock. For example, uh, let's listen to this. This is the intro to Yummy, Yummy, Yummy by The Ohio Express, a bubblegum classic from 1968. <laughs> Okay, now uh, listen to the intro to Just What I Needed. This is the rock classic from the Cars, who I would consider kind of punk adjacent, definitely punk influenced. This was released 10 years later in close, right? Well, Joey Ramone said that the Ramones really liked the Bay City Rollers song Saturday Night, and the chant in Saturday Night served as their inspiration for this. Hey, oh, let's go, oh, 
that hey ho let's go you know that fun opening with blitzkrieg bop and that's the ramones homage to the bay city rollers and that is in fact joey ramone singing out that hey ho part although Dee Dee and tommy ramone wrote it it was their first single from their first album released in early 1976 you know the ramones as a band also kind of emulated the archies or the monkeys for example in that they they took their name ramone as their band name but it wasn't just their band name they also took it as their last names. None of them were named Ramon or related at all, kind of like, I guess, the Partridges. Their songs, most of which are just two minutes, do echo bubblegum in their simplicity. So it's not hard to see how they are perhaps descendants of bubblegum. In the tradition of Ricky Nelson in the 1950s and Sean Cassidy's brother, David Cassidy, Sean Cassidy combined this TV star with pop music star image. Sean Cassidy starred with Parker Stevenson and Pamela Sue Anderson in the ABC series The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries, which aired from 1977 to 1979. Now we get this report from Al Wallace, who was the chief of the security force at the Plaza in Detroit. And this was his observation Uh, a few hours after a Sean Cassidy concert. He said, I have never, I mean never in my life, seen anything like this. And I have handled security on everything from presidential motorcades to Diana Ross and Tony Orlando. The excitement the kid created was incredible. Sean Cassidy, his cover of The Do Run Run from 1977, it was on his debut album. It went to number one. Critics like Scott Kane of the Atlanta Constitution raked Sean Cassidy over the coals. He said that Sean Cassidy had a voice that was bland and colorless. This unleashed a whole other slew of letters to the letter to letters to the editor uh, from fans who were outraged at the mistreatment of their teen idol. Kane responded, saying that he stood by his assessment that Dudu Run Run is, quote, an excruciating piece of music that would have been far better off left in the hit parade graveyard. To that I say, many years later, that Kane missed the point of a pop song like this one. It is not intended to be compared with Blowing in the Wind. Uh, it's for the enjoyment and entertainment particularly of a specific target market, which I think is really fine. However, I will say that Scott Kane made a good point with this remark. He said, Sean seems not to have learned from the mistakes of David Cassidy's career. A teenage idol doesn't have to fade into oblivion after two years at the top, but that's what will happen to Sean 
unless he can establish himself with a broader audience. Hmm. Now, the story of those singers and bands that were real bands and performed for adoring fans has often been followed by a fall that was as quick as the rise. This happens due to stereotyping, aging, or just because that singer's 15 minutes of fame is up. They were in the right place at the right time for a while. I'm not sure that it's so that a teenage idol can always change their image. That's been difficult to do. Even thinking back to um, well before the 70s, what Ricky Nelson tried to do, even changing his name from Ricky to Rick Nelson. That's not easy. However, I'm not so sure that Sean Cassidy did not learn from his brother David. Uh, When he did see that his star was starting to fade after his third album, he turned his attention to acting. After that, he became a TV writer and a producer. Today, he is an executive producer of a TV, so, a TV show called um, New Amsterdam. By the end of the 70s, bubblegum music had, I think, passed the torch on to punk, and it gave way on the billboard charts to disco. It would rise again in the late 90s and into the early 21st century with the likes of Britney Spears and the Spice Girls and NSYNC and the like. While this music did not comment on social issues or politics, I would argue it was never fake. Some of Pop's best writers wrote songs for Bubblegum. Neil Diamond comes to mind. And some of the best session musicians played on these songs. We're crying out loud. Joe Walsh played on some of the Ohio Express songs. There is a reason why many of these songs endure and are memorable decades later. To compare them to what they are not is like comparing a cool drink of water to a glass of champagne. Both can be just what you need in the right place at the right time. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. All of the sources for this show are on the website, ftr70.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. And if you enjoy what you hear, please go give a nice rating on your podcast app so that other like-minded people can find the show. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.